0: but organic is about growing health through your food through your soil um but really learning that mother nature knows what to do you're just, it's more important that you don't in interrupt mother nature as a farmer let the systems work let the natural systems do what they're meant to do all i do is i make sure i i'm uh um, make, make sure that I address any corrections that need to be made, such as air, water, organic matter, minerals in the soil. But really, the, the natural functions are working on their own. I just need to be a caretaker, make sure the systems <clears throat> are, have everything they need.
1: Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Guy Schwanier, one of Vermont's most innovative dairy farmers, according to just about everyone we talked to. Guy and his son, Matt, spoke to Dave last fall and shared their journey from conventional to organic dairy farming, and now onto managing their herd on a 100% grass-fed diet. They also shared plenty of thoughts and solutions for struggling dairies in New England, due to pay prices that are well below the cost of production for so many of their friends and neighbors.
2: Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast,
0: and I'm talking today with Guy and Matt Chouanier.
2: Do you say that, Chouanier or Chouanier?
0: Chouanier. Chouanier is French pronunciation, and Chouanier is what it's evolved to on this side of the border.
2: Yeah, I I figured it it had evolved a little here (laughs) in in America. Okay, Chouanier. Um, these guys are really good dairy farmers in, in Vermont. And I, I think some of the, some of the best farmers, uh, in the Northeast and, uh, you know, uh, you're doing great stuff. I'm really, I'm really happy to be talking about it today. So, uh, Matt told us a little bit of the history. Gee, why don't you tell us just, if you would, a little bit of the history. How, how did you, how'd you come to do this?
0: dairy farming well being the only boy i didn't feel i had many choices (laughs) so i do have two sisters who were involved in the farm but i seemed to be the one chosen i was the youngest and the one expected to take over the farm so uh it wasn't didn't take me long to realize that i either better decide i'm going to like it or i'm not going to like it my dad had a heart attack when i was 19. so that was the point where i had to make a choice Uh, my dad said you don't have to take over the farm, but he said, uh, at this point, so you need to decide So to see if we're going to keep the cows or sell the cows. Uh, so since 19 years old, he's pretty much, my dad let me make decisions and move the farm in the direction that I was seeing was best f- for the future. And that's where it's been ever since. We've been moving forward uh, with support from my parents. And now, then I married uh, my wife, Beth, in nine. 19- 1993 and she's been very supportive following you know supporting the farm every step of the way and we had two children Matt and Hannah we, were, we tried to expose them to as many things about farming as we could to make sure when they make their decision if they want to stay on the farm that it's based on uh, not just milking cows and we're real happy that they both picked up a, many skills working and growing up on a farm, Uh, and Matt deciding to stay, has my wife and I are are ecstatic about that, that he feels there's a future here for him. And I am looking forward to helping Matt move the farm into different places that I didn't think that I would wanna go.
2: So what year did you take over? We make that decision, okay. I'm gonna run this farm.
0: Uh, when I was 19, that was uh 1985 when okay. my dad had the heart attack,
2: and and this was what would be called a conventional farm at that point, very we, conventional, very conventional. Yes. Was it that point that you decided that you wanted to do it differently? That you thought there were opportunities? No,
0: no, uh, it took me, uh a few years to create enough confidence to make those types of decisions, life-changing decisions, because going to organic was life-changing for us. Um, my dad had was very successful in the way he was farming. He was conventional, which just meant that, you know, he was producing high-quality feed, he was feeding a lot of grain, he worked with genetics, He made a lot of milk. Um, it's not that he wasn't successful, it's that the market started becoming unstable. The milk market, you know, as we reached uh, years into it, you know, the 1990s, early nineties, I saw that, okay, um, my parents are relying on me to support their retirement. And do I want to be in a market that I can't predict or rely on? So that's when my wife and I started looking at organic farming and and visiting organic farms, going to organic, uh, meetings and really felt the love (laughs) and the confidence that uh, I was looking for and the stability.
2: Yeah, that was still in the relatively pretty early days of organic in America.
0: It was. I wasn't getting a lot of support from my neighbors because it was so new. They were saying your cows are going to starve, your cows are going to die, you won't be able to treat them. But my instincts were saying, let's go. This is the way I want to farm, and if it's going to work, this is the way it's going to work. Uh so what became what started out being a for financial reasoning it became uh more of a life change on how I wanted to raise my family.
2: And where did you where did you get the information of how to do that like you weren't getting it from extension at that
0: point. No luckily enough connections with um some pioneers in the organic field like Jack Laser and um, Lyle Edwards, you know, uh, from North Troy. These guys came to see me and said, because I was going to Horizon uh, meetings, because they were the first ones to reach out to me. After you, exposure, so after you reach out to the, to the organic market, you sort of uh, get pinpointed by the co op And Horizon did approach me first, so that's all I knew. I was going to their meetings and expecting that I was gonna be a, a Horizon farmer. But uh, Jack Laser and Lyle Edwards caught, caught wind of that. And they said, no, so you are not a Horizon farmer. You're an Organic Valley farmer. <laughs> 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 so you need to come to our meetings to get and, and, and meet us and make sure that before you make a choice that you're exposed to Organic Valley as well. Said, you're definitely an organic valley farmer. So So
2: what what was the difference between being a Horizon farmer, in their mind, and an organic valley farmer? It was
0: something about the atmosphere at the meeting. These farmers were working so collectively and working together, and there was no... I could just tell that they are building off each other and really trying to reach the next level, but together. And uh, I didn't feel that at Horizon. It was business as usual. They told us what we are going to get for a pay price. You know, the more you make, the more you can generate for income, but it was a lot more at the Organic Valley meetings. It was about uh, how you treat your animals, how you treat your land, uh, milk quality. Wasn't all about price, very little bit bit about price. So I could tell that it was um, a team approach and I really enjoyed that.
2: Yeah. It's amazing that when you discover a community or you grow and become part of a community, it, it makes everything so much easier, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. And, that, and that's what I was looking for. Um, I wanted something long term, not short term. And again, I wanted to improve our health through our farming, not through uh, our, our primary doctor, basically. And I knew that if I could prove this through the cows, that I could move that same theory into our household. And that's exactly what we did. We started, tr- no, we started managing the animals Organically, improving the soils, improving the feeds, saw that the vet bills were dropping co- consistently until we got to the point where, wow, this works. I mean, food can be our, our health. And so I, I didn't hesitate to make sure that we changed our ways yeah. in the house as well. You know, For we, what you were eating. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. So, Matt, you grew up on an organic farm I did that's different right so Ghee was like having a conversion experience with all the terror that involved you grew up all right this is how we do it this is what the world looks like then you went to college and actually you were the weird guy because they, they had a different <laughs> understanding right
3: right yeah yeah so yeah I guess growing up I do remember sitting around the table and our parents saying like hey we're going to be going organic this is what it means this is how things are going to change a little bit and then as we transitioned, we were finding all the new tools to put in our toolbox whether or a lot of it on how to um, like supplements so a big one was garlic tincture um, that was a, that was one of my dad's favorites to treat sick calves with. And it was also the favorite tool to treat sick kids with. <laughs> oh, and I was being so young. I, I wouldn't tell anyone when I didn't feel good because I did not,
2: I did not want to no go for a garlic tincture. Did not wanna,
3: and I didn't eat garlic for years cause I thought it just tasted bad. Now I love garlic, Yeah, but yeah, the, the different herbal remedies that we would try in such unpalatable ways um but now um i grew up as a very healthy child yeah and that definitely played a played a big role in learning learning like proper nutrition how your diet does affect your health uh, yeah so when going to college uh, that was definitely not mainstream um, alternative treatments and kind of like holistic management wasn't necessarily the the cool thing in college. I think now more so it is. Uh, I think the young younger generation of farmers now are really into reg- regenerative agriculture, and and healing the land. Like the people who are getting into farming now, they're doing it because they feel a higher purpose in it, not necessarily just because they want to make money. Because th- they all know coming into it that that's a questionable. Questionable if they're going to get they're not going to get rich. But there is a lot of um, a lot of satisfaction in doing the right thing and managing the land the right way. So I think that's what's drawing young, young kids into, into agriculture now. Um, Vermont Tech was, was very um, open as far as the, the professors were all supportive of organic agriculture. We didn't necessarily learn a whole lot about organic methods, but def- they definitely weren't discouraged. We had a local organic farmer right down the road uh, from from the school, Brent Beidler, and I got to work for him for a semester. And we were, my, my parents knew them anyway. So when I transferred schools, we actually went to go see Brent and uh, I got a job there a couple nights a week. So. Yeah, so
2: it's a whole thing where there starts to be this web. Exactly. There, and they, there are now organic farms all over instead of I, you didn't have any organic neighbors and there aren't too many in the state at that point even.
0: No, no, it a risky move. But um, what, now I can look back and success grows. You know, success a- attracts uh, people. And that's exactly what people were seeing, success. You now my neighbors went by for years just looking but not giving us any credit. But now they know that our methods can work and do work, you know, just, such as, just like their methods work. But it's how you prefer to, to farm, and we choose to farm without a lot of outside input.
2: So, so let me ask you, like, to you, what does it mean to be an organic farmer? Because there's tremendous misunderstanding amongst the eaters about what that means. And, and, you know, it kind of has come down to this really simplistic, it means it's not sprayed with pesticides, Right. but it's so much more
0: than that. For me as a farmer, it means not following recommendations. <laughs> because starting out as a conventional farmer, we were constantly, um, visited by salespeople trying to sell you product. And then you, you know, you have your grain, you have your fertilizer, you have your chemical recommendations. And basically that's what you do as a farmer. You follow your recommendations and then you deal with the veterinary when your cows are sick. But I knew there must have been something better than that. This, this is where my instincts kicked in. Um, so organic farming to me has really taught me how to work with my instinct, work with what I can, what I can do myself on this farm to, to encourage health. And it's been working really well. And I got to give credit to a lot of the resources that we have to, through the years that help teach us you know, through these workshops but organic is about growing health through your food through your soil um but really learning that mother nature knows what to do you're just, it's more important that you don't in, interrupt mother nature as a farmer let the systems work let the natural systems do what they're meant to do all i do is i make sure i i'm uh uh, make, make sure that I address any corrections that need to be made, such as air, water, organic matter, minerals in the soil. But really, the, the natural functions are working on their own. I just need to be a caretaker, make sure the systems are, have everything they need.
2: I think it takes a lot of discipline to do that. Because one of the things I know is that when somebody comes to sell you something, and, and what they're promising is that your production is going to go up, right? You're going to make more money because your production, your milk production is going to go up.
0: And usually that is true for a little while. For us, production com- comes with longevity. And longevity comes with health. So working on the health piece is a lot more important to me than working on the produc- production piece. That will come with longevity, As the, and for us it's for cows, as their mammary systems mature, these cows aren't peaking. Don't even start peaking till they get five, six, seven, eight years old, and a lot of farmers don't even get to see their cows reach that. So for me, no, I was able to stay in the business long enough to see that. Okay, let's. These cows are amazing. They have amazing potential just naturally if you can get them to stick around healthy, um, and and de-stressed, and you know good feet and Just all around healthy. Um, And they are paying the bills easily through their production. But my main purpose is to get them to be to get them to stay on the farm for a long amount of time.
2: Now, you said many, most farmers don't ever get a chance to see their cows get that old. Why not? What happened? Well, the
0: average age uh, of a cow in the conventional world is four years old. So they're trying to get all the production out of these younger animals. And they probably are. But overall, I would compare our animals to any of these high-producing conventional cows through a a lifespan of production. And um, so that's where I would compare our animals to any other top-producing herd is a lifetime of production. Now, Our cows are, are living 10, 12 years old, still producing a decent amount of milk. And that all adds up, and that's the direction we're heading. We're going to stick to it.
2: So there, uh, it's interesting. Davey said that you talk about your cows like marathon runners, and I, I talk about my tomato plants a lot as if they were athletes because that's what they are for me. And and you don't want to you don't want to burn them out. You don't want to exhaust them. Yeah, they can have one great jump and then they hurt themselves.
0: Exactly. They're they are. It, 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 it took me a few years to realize it but I, I finally realized that i needed to be an expert nutritionist feeding them on an all forged diet because i'm dealing with uh olympic athletes <laughs> and when you start looking at the amount of calories they're burning per day these high producing lactating animals are comparing are very comparable to athletes that do these endurance sports because that's exactly what a cow is doing even though she might not be running up and down the, the trail producing milk requires a lot of calories and you need to be really good as a farmer to meet her energy needs. And I feel we've done a good job, and we're, but this, you, never, um, you never stop learning, you never st- stop trying to improve your system. And, but I think we're doing a really good job.
2: So let's talk about what your cows eat. You're, you're grass-fed, right? So what does that mean?
0: 100% grass-fed. It didn't start out that way, though. There's a learning curve. I wouldn't recommend anyone just to cut, cut out if their cows are used to grain to just stop cold turkey and go to grain. We slowly wean them off because as you take away their supplements, you need to be beefing up the rest of your program, your, your soils program, your forage program. And it took, no, I didn't rush into it. I, it took me a good five, six years of challenging that cow. Okay, how much more feed would, do you want to eat? Okay, uh, what's it going to take for me to get her to eat more? And, but at the same time, you're improving your quality. So, so palatability, um, a lot of things come into play. How much feed can you get into a cow? But how high of a quality can you get, accomplish out in the field? So there's a few different angles you've got to accomplish. And um, I think we've done a good job just learning how to get the most energy out of the feeds that we feed and realizing that grass is a highest quality feed you can feed a cow because you look at the grass each blade of grass is a solar panel and if you can catch that blade of grass and allow that cow to eat it directly there's no better feed than that because she's getting full utilization of that energy that plant has absorbed so Grazing is no better way to feed a cow than than letting her eat it direct from the pasture.
2: And how much of the year, I mean, we're in Vermont, we have a real winter. How much of the year do the cows get to go out and eat grass out in pasture?
0: We're a little shy of six months that we can get a cow to eat on pasture. We're in a cold season zone and um, there gets to a point where they're doing more damage than good in the pastures. Yeah, they could get a little more grass out of it, but if they're damaging it for the next year, it's time for them to come into these hoop barns and start producing fertilizer for the fall for the next growing season. Right. Um, so you're right, we need to we need to make milk year-round. So our harvested feed needs to be high quality. And we've adopted a few practices that have really worked well. Um, hay in a day. Uh, works well, um, but really feeding the soil so that the, the, um, the biology can, can really push that grass so that it has the highest energy it can accomplish. But maybe Matt has a, yeah. a good angle on that.
2: Matt, how do you feed the soil? Um,
0: well, healthy soil,
3: it takes, um, it takes air in the soil, it takes enough water so making sure that we're not over compacting our soil is number one so all of our machinery um, first of all we try to run over it with equipment the least amount possible we have uh, flotation tires on all of our implements and we try not to have anything super heavy like we don't have huge oversized tractors running over the fields Uh, we don't till um, because that would break up soil structure Sorry,
2: you, you don't ever till? Are you a no-till farm? We're a no-till
3: farm. All of our, all of our land is in permanent, permanent grass. Occasionally, if, if we have a field that's damaged, we, we'll, uh, we'll just run a power hair over the top just to, just to make a nice seed bed, then we'll reseed it. But we do frost seed, cl- uh, mostly clover, to get a good legume stand in there. We, uh, diversity is definitely important in any, uh, in any forage system, um, the more varieties and different species of plants you have in there, kind of the more they can work off each other and they host different, different colonies of, of different fungal networks, different bacterial colonies, and they can all, they can all work off each other to improve the health of the soil and the health of the plants. Building organic matter is another big one. Uh, we First of all, by not tilling, we're not oxidizing any of the organic matter in the soil. So whatever goes in can at least stay there and, and we can build. We add a lot of um, compost made from our bedded packs. That's another source of carbon. Leaving a nice residue layer on the field is another way. The um, the hay rake that we have, we have a merger. And we always leave a good, uh, good gap between the tines and the ground so that we, we're not... We're not pulling up any of that thatch layer underneath. A lot of rakes will kind of scuff the ground and get, all, get everything, um, but it also takes away a lot of protection from the soil. So having, having that little bit of grass that stays on the ground is another good way to build organic matter. And the organic matter, the more organic matter you have, the more nutrient retention you have, and the more water you can hold.
0: So there was i uh... I'll just add a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. Keith. Yeah, I, I look at the soil sometimes as a hotel and how many uh people can you house in that hotel well picture the soil and the microbes so my our our goal is to get as as high as a population as we can and so this bedded pack is an awesome uh source where the microbes can feed off from and those microbes are actually what's feeding the grass and the root systems and so i just picture okay how can i just invite more and more of these microbes to populate and to produce energy for this grass and that seems to work where the more you feed the soil the more you build organic matter Uh, uh, it just seems to represent higher energy feeds
2: so it becomes a virtuous cycle exactly the, the more microbes, the better everything grows. The better everything grows, the more microbes.
0: Yeah, people are always looking for nitrogen sources, but the soil can produce its own nitrogen. You just got to get the populate micro population high enough so that it actually starts showing it through the plants. Yeah. Because they're releasing byproducts. They're digesting organic matter, which is, which is producing humus, and that humus is what the plants just absorb, eat right up. Yeah. So... You, you milk about 80? Yeah, we carry about 80 lactating animals.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and how many acres of pasture does it take to feed them for that six month period?
0: Well managed. Um At l- least uh, we have 145 acres of pasture, but some of that is for our bred heifers and our replacements. So we're rotating about 100 acres for the milking cows and That's pushing it. Uh, What's that come out to? Acres per animal. That's a little over over an acre. 1.1, yeah. Yeah. And you can do it, but it needs to be well managed. It needs to be well fed. We don't just rely on the cow's uh, performance out there as far as mineralizing. We actually will add more nutrients to the pasture even after the the cows have gone through. And some people probably... Wouldn't agree with that, but if you do a really good job with your compost, you can apply that during a growing season. It actually doesn't hinder the palatability of the grass. But we these big Holsteins eat a lot of dry matter and they actually are eating more than they're leaving. And it took me at least 10 years to figure this out that I'm in a break even situation with these Holsteins that yeah, they're out there. We're rotationally grazing. Um, but when they go out there and eat, they eat a lot of feed, but they're not leaving me as much manure to replace what they took. And I was always breaking even, though the pastures were good, but not really, uh, not, I felt I could do better. So then we started applying this bedded pack manure after the second rotation at about three to five tons of the acre, which is crazy. But I said, I'm that type of guy that likes to do things at the extreme levels and but it's amazing that we would put that out there we bought some spreaders that did a real nice job at spreading out the manure no clumps really made some ground uh contact the manure to ground contact and it's amazing how it might set you back a little bit on the third rotation where the cows do more picking because of the manure but at the same time they're really beating it up pushing it into the dirt but you wouldn't believe how well we do in the, in the, after that point. You no, know, the fourth, fifth, and those fall grazings are amazing. So it's worth that little bit of setback during uh, early season grazing. But we get amazing yields after that. So we've really adopted that philosophy, and it seems to work really well. And the cows do a good job at working that manure in and punching it right into the soil. Yeah, yeah.
2: So it seems like the magic ingredient here is knowledge and management if i if i'm getting it right you're not bringing in some some great amendment from off the farm that's going to suddenly make everything work you didn't buy a new bigger tractor you're actually making a living in a time when most dairy farmers that i talk to are operating at a loss they're Every time they ship out the milk, they lose money. I go, oh my god, how do you even stay in business?
0: Right. We stick to the basics. The basics works, do a really good job. Like I said, I tend I, I, I try not to disturb <laughs> what Mother Nature is trying to do. Um, I just try to fix what the cows might have damaged on their way through. You know, these cows are heavy, they 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 can create some compaction. So we try to make sure we move them timely. Um, we we feed the soil after they've gone through. Um, we try to be resilient. The, the, probably our biggest challenge now is climate change. You know, where you always think you have it figured out, but the weather changes. You get a drought. You get extreme rains. But it's amazing if you can create turn your farm into a giant sponge. It protects you from too much rain, and it'll protect you from not enough rain. And it sounds simple, but it works. You know, just little things like that.
2: Uh, it's, it's simple, but complicated. I mean, it's not
0: easy to do. Discipline. You have to be disciplined and stick to the plan. And usually the weather will come back around. But building resilience is key now because that's going to be our biggest challenge. I think is going to be... water, water retention and water infiltration and water absorbing, because we don't want to let any water run off this farm. (laughs) We want to keep it all. So that's our goal moving forward. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I read Michael Pollan's Omnivore's dilemma again, not too long ago. He does an amazing job of sort of describing how we got into such a mess in agriculture. And one of the things he talks a lot about is with grazing animals, and he explains that the first bite, you want the cow to eat the first bite, and you don't want the cow to eat the second bite of the grass, because then you take it down so low that you've you've kind of broken up the photosynthetic capacity of it, and the roots die back. It takes a long time to recover. Did I describe that reasonably well?
0: Basically, yeah. I think it's uh, a cow is good for so many bites. Before she gets tired, wants to go take a drink and lay down. So it's very important for the farmer to set their paddocks up so that there's enough feed out there for 200 bites for all his cows. If you want to use a figure, I'm using 200. But it's much more profitable to the farmer if he lets the cow eat 200 big bites. If the grass is already too short when the cows get out there, they're going to take 200 little bites and that's going to Result in less milk production, and it's going to stress your your pastures out. So it's really important. It's all part of the management. Make sure you have plenty of feed out there. And if you're in a position where you don't have enough feed out there, then that's where you could supplement. Because it's more important for you to make sure that cow doesn't stretch your, your your grass out, because it's going to set you back for the rest of the year. We manage our pastures as importantly for the grass and roots to recover as we do for the cows to go in there and get plenty of feed. So that's where the round bales come in for us. We'll supplement a little bit and realize, okay, yeah, I can send them out there, but if they're gonna do more damage than good, I might as well, you know, supplement them, fill them up a little bit before they go out, and then they won't be quite so hungry and won't stress the grass out so much.
2: Yeah.
3: And I think a new way that we can kind of look at ourselves as farmers is, a, is we're really just land farmers and the cows are a tool for us to manage the land, but the land is the most important thing. It's the land comes first, and then it's how, how we can best manage land with the animals, using the animals. And yeah. I think that's where we get.
2: Yeah, that's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, I think
0: a lot of farmers um, are having a hard time matching the amount of land they have with the amount of animals they have. You know, they're being forced to carry more animals, to make more milk. To, to generate enough revenue to pay the bills. But yet, if they look at their land base, they didn't increase at the same rate. So I think that's where the spiral eventually starts going backwards. and especially now with the environmentalists uh, cracking down on some of these water quality regulations that being overpopulated on our farms isn't going to be cool anymore.
2: So what you're describing is a sustainable, regenerative system that could go on Forever, I mean, the, the, the land just keeps getting more fertile, the cows keep getting healthier, you keep getting healthier. And yet, the whole system seems to be pushing dairy farmers, more and more dairy farmers, into doing it wrong. And, and you know, they go, well, I can't stay alive unless I put more cows on the pasture. And, of course, what you're saying is, yeah, well, in five years, that's not going to work out either.
0: I think we have special interests uh, influencing us <laughs> on the out in the outside world and trying to get the farmers to do things or incentivizing the farmers to, d- to do things that they probably wouldn't normally do. You know, a lot of farmers have gone to row crops because they're being sent- incentivized. Uh, grazing, as far as the grazing world, um, I think we need to make sure we... we uh, adopt a a theory that sick land equals sick food and i think if people can start realizing that and sourcing the food that's coming from our healthier soils then that'll help the methods that we want to continue in the future for farming but um i know matt's really he's good for this i'll let him comment on that
3: i think it's it's, you need uh the farmers need to be getting paid enough to, pr- to do things right like it's always easier to cut corners and when when uh, any farmer doesn't make enough money to even when they're operating below the cost of production like they're not going to spend the extra money to like to make more buffers along their fields because they need all that land or they need more animals to pay their bills but they don't necessarily have the land to enough land to spread the nutrients on so Giving the farmers a fair pay price I think would be a good way to start being able to see some of these positive changes because a lot of farmers want to do things the right way. But it's it's a question of market access and having enough money or getting paid enough money for what you're making to actually do things the right way. And I think if we pay the farmers enough, then then they will.
2: So we got a situation right now in Vermont where 10% of the organic dairies just got notified by Horizon that they got a year and and then they lose their contracts. And most of them, unless something amazing happens, aren't gonna find anybody to pick those up. I don't think Organic Valley can pick them up. So what happened? How is it? How is it that the world doesn't want good organic milk coming from pasture-fed animals?
0: Well, I think um, these farmers were part of a business that is corporate owned and it was a business decision. It wasn't an ethical decision. And you got to wonder how hard should we be working to get these farmers back on board with Horizon if they don't have their best interests at heart. We're lucky we're with Organic Valley. It's a farmer owned co-op. We're all looking out for each other. And that's the difference between these two companies. These farmers 10 years ago would have been, would have had a spot easily uh, with other co ops because there wasn't such a surplus of milk. Right now, um, there's p- so much milk on the market, they're having, they're going to have a hard time finding a spot with other co ops or handlers. Mm. Um, so I think this is a perfect opportunity to somehow incentivize these farmers and try to turn them into our a model farm that we're looking for in the future you know help these farmers turn their farms into regenerative self-sustaining farms that feed local people and try to turn their product into a niche product and then create markets such as through the schools and through our hospitals as the healthiest food that you can get. Because I think that's the future for farmers is that it's gonna be a healing. Our food is gonna become our health and our healing. And maybe these, maybe this is an opportunity for these farms, but also for us to work through these farms to create a, a model that can actually heal people, show pe- that we can heal people through our food.
2: You know, I was talking. I was interviewing uh, <clears throat> Earl Ransom um, for this symposium to uh, Stratford Creamery, and he said, "You know, one of the things that's happened is a lot of dairy farmers are very disconnected from the people who drink their milk, and they, some of them, forget that they're making milk for people to to eat. If they're making milk for the processor, it, there's so many steps in the chain." that there's no connection between the farmer and the eater in the end. For dairy, it's easier for vegetables, but I see it's really a challenge for dairy. You guys seem to be still very connected to the fact that what you're doing matters to people.
3: I think Organic Valley, again, to give them credit, they do a really good job keeping the farmers in touch with the employees, in touch with the consumers, Um, Us personally, we've been, we've had tons of opportunities to connect with different consumers at different uh, farmer events, at different, like uh, they host events before COVID, um, where they bring public onto different farms across the U.S. Um, There's also programs to get farmers into the school system, into politics, and it's really about, for one, keeping showing the people who's growing their food. But also, I think it's good for the farmer to see who's buying their food. Like, who am I making this for? And I think they've done a really good job at kind of giving us, like, a mission to make the best possible food for these people. And I think the people really appreciate it. All of our customers, if you look at, like, any... uh, any interaction between Organic Valley customers and their farmers, a lot of times they look at the farmers as total rock stars. Like they're so excited to meet one of the, one of the farmers who's, who's making the milk that's going
0: into their yogurt or into their cheese or into their milk. So
3: it's, it's good to have that connection.
0: And we, and we have a farm store. We've had a farm store for like 10 years and we get a lot of feedback and we get a lot of uh, um, people who come back and say, wow, that we were never able to drink milk before, but now we can because we know we feel really good about how you treat your cows or you know, or your your pigs and your chickens. But we get a lot of feedback so we know that it matters, but we just need to take the time to communicate with our consumers.
2: Yeah. It's the challenge here. And one of the things I've seen is a lot of farmers actually they're kind of solitary people. They're they're a little bit introverted, and that's some of them. That's why they got into farming, because they they like being with cows. So they like being out in the field, by themselves. and And it's a different skill set to run a, a bottling plant and, and then sell your milk to, to people. It's a, it's a challenge that we face.
0: People probably don't realize it, but it's it's. Uh, I get anxiety every time I see people, <laughs> when I see people because you're right I'm that type of guy that just is I grew up just working with the animals not with the public but I know the effort makes a difference and that's why I do it but it's not that it's easy for me to go out in the public and and publicly speak and and, and doing webinars and things like that but it's worth I can see that people appreciate it and it's worth it
2: yeah I, I can share the sickening feeling in your stomach before you have to talk to a group of people so yeah yeah i i i still have that
0: dread i know and i see matt no he does such a good job with it but they they taught him that in school how to public speak and it it makes a difference
2: yeah
3: i was also kind of as from a young age when he was he was doing tours from the get-go and um i'd always be kind of in the back watching then he'd be like matt what do you have to say (laughs) 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 I i didn't know i was gonna speak so I kind of got used to it through that too so
2: yeah that's good just
3: getting just getting to be around it and, and everyone they're all just people like it's no different than having a conversation um, having a conversation with a lot of people at once is a little more intimidating but um, I've I've been lucky enough for through the farm I've had a lot of opportunities just to interact with tons of people and, and when you're telling this, uh, your own story it's it's really easy if you ask me to go and or any of us to talk about something we don't know then it would be a lot harder but we're passionate about it and we talk about it all day long anyway so having just talking to a different person about it is uh can kind of come it comes more naturally
2: so that's an important part about what a real education is and you know, it's always somewhat technical, but there's a lot of other stuff about people's skills and all the things they call soft skills, that which is how we thrive. Uh, so I have a question. You said, yeah, and the world is sort of awash in milk now. America is awash in milk. There's a lot of milk, and that's what makes it cheap. I'm trying to figure out why there's a lot of milk. Uh, you know, all I've seen is, uh, I think. Uh, of the organic dairy farmers in Vermont have gone out of business in the last 10 years. California's lost half of their organic dairy farms in the last 10 years. Where's all this milk coming from that we're awash in?
0: Well, I think milk, first of all, has lost its, or dairy itself has lost its place on the food pyramid. It's lost its place at the bottom of the base as a staple food. It used to be a staple food. Now it's considered restricted. Uh, 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 regulated because it can create heart disease if you drink too much or eat too much. So that's the first thing, you Now, if if I saw that, I probably, if I believe that, I probably would do the same thing. But they need to realize that it depends on how the cow is fed. It's very important to know how your cow is fed because she will give you everything. She'll give you all the best that she has to give, but she'll also give you the worst. So if, if you're feeding her any, uh, no, uh, hormones, she's gonna give you hormones in her milk. If she's, if you're feeding her a lot of grain, you're gonna change the fat profile in her milk. Now, you really need to know, and that's why we're, we switched to grass, because we learned that a grass-fed cow will give you the perfect ratio in her milk between omega-3 and omega-6. And that's a real big part of preventing heart disease, is keeping your omega-6 in balance with your omega-3. My dad had a heart attack, when uh, I was 19 and I you know they say it's hereditary well I eat at least three to four eggs a day and I drink a ton of milk as well and I run quite often just as a gauge because I said I'll know when I start getting some heart disease because I won't be able to run uh, like I did when I was 30 years old but I'm running as fast and as far as I did when I was 30 and I'm 56 years old so I, to myself, I had to prove it to myself before I can preach it to other people that these grass-fed animals are giving you a perfect diet with their milk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's probably a surplus because people are just um, um, insecure about what they can eat and what they can't eat.
2: Well... <sighs> I think there is a growing insecurity about all our food, yeah. and, and it's appropriate. Yeah, They ought to be insecure. Yeah. Um, we, we're seeing that the nutrient content of basic foodstuffs has consistently gone down from 1940 when the USDA started testing. A potato now is not a potato. From 1940, a carrot is not a carrot. You know, everything's changed. And I'm sure a quart of milk is not a quart of milk. Maybe your milk. Maybe your milk is, but, but uh, not the typical one on the shelf. But even so with all that concern, actually milk sales have gone up. I you know, I was tracking it, it's like it keeps growing. Organic milk sales, organic milk sales have gone up. And yet we're drowning in milk. So where's that milk coming from? <laughs>
3: I think a lot of it's also like we have farms going out of business, but they're the the land and the animals aren't really going out of dairy production. They're just changing hands. Yeah. So I think farm consolidation is is definitely one where you see the average size of the farm that's just going up, um, but the number of farms is going down. Yeah. So fewer farms are just making more milk, and the big farms are making a ton of milk. Yeah. So it's not just uh, 100 farms here and there making with, with 50, 60 cows. It's, it's a few dozen farms with thousands of cows that, that are kind of
0: producing all the milk. And and these organic cows, there's some good organic farmers out there. They started out conventionally. And that is an advantage to be conventional once in your life, because you can learn um, uh, methods that how to how to feed a cow, how to how to uh, get high quality feed out of your soil. There are some of those you can carry over to your organic practice as well. And I would have never thought that we would make as much milk today as we were when we were conventional. When we switched to organic farming, our cows didn't drop a bit, but I was still feeding organic grain at the time. Um, so the feed didn't change really, but the, uh, I, was making up, I was still balancing their ration with the grain. But then the biggest challenge was when I switched to grass-fed. That's where I knew the program had to really jump up as far, and where did they have to jump it? They had to jump up in, in uh, soil soil quality, um, I had to pull. I had to make sure the competition in the feed bunk was relieved, or in the pasture they had to have more room to make sure they could eat more. Um, so things had to change. But we're actually making as much milk today as we were when we were conventional.
2: As much milk per cow. Per cow. Wow, well, that's fantastic. And you wouldn't
0: you wouldn't think that. I was never told that would happen, but it can happen.
2: Yeah. Well, that's that's taking it to another level that's you know really of course it makes sense to me it always makes sense to me that a a natural system should thrive but uh there's a lot of learning that has to go into that to get to
0: that level a lot of learning Uh, but i don't know if this i think the consumption has uh, people don't eat at the the family doesn't eat around the table like they used to And that's where we used to drink a lot of milk, is around the table with the kids and with the family. And then your kids see that and you train your kids that they'll do the same when they have their families. But it's been a couple of generations now, we eat on the run. And when you're eating on the run, milk doesn't travel well. So I think uh, we could help ourselves a little more if society would just slow down and eat as a family and, and make sure they have their gallon of milk in front of them and know where it came from, know your farmer. And I think that would help us out.
2: I had to eat on the run today coming here, but I had a bowl of Butterworks yogurt for there lunch, you, go. you Perfect. know, and a little maple syrup in there and, and, and some blueberries I picked in Vermont and for, so it was very good. You can't beat that. No, it was very good. It's about what I eat every day for lunch. So I, I was on the run, but it was the same thing. So I'm curious about the grass fed market. Um, Uh, Somebody was telling me that Aurora has a grass-fed dairy in Texas, and I think it was four thousand cows, maybe three thousand. I think it was four thousand cows at this grass-fed dairy, and and it was a little over about the same ratio you have uh, of of a little over an acre per cow, except it's in the middle of the desert. (laughs) And I thought, I wonder how that works, and and you know, I was curious. I know Horizon also has. A grass fed label. And they told me, they, Danone told me that that's actually only for dairy farms, although you can get it all over the country. So they must be pretty big dairy farms.
0: It's amazing if, how they could find rulings to um, get away with anything. I don't know. You know. I'm not an inspector, but I would expect, you know, when we try to do everything right. So when, it, when, I, when we say it's 100% grass-fed and 60% of the diet comes from grass, that's exactly what happens on this farm. So I would hope that either their inspector, the USDA, would, would uh, follow up with these guys and make sure that if they're being certified as grass-fed, that it's actually, but they need to say 100% grass-fed. And I know that's uh, real important.
2: Now you just said sixty. It's one hundred percent grass fed. Sixty percent comes from from pasture, pasture, and the rest would be like hay. You
0: can supplement with hay, uh, harvested feeds. Yeah, harvested hay, okay, grass or legumes or green chop. Yeah, green chop. Yeah, yeah. So maybe they're bypassing some rules by doing you know some grass through harvested feeds, but for us it's sixty percent. Of their dry matter needs to come from pasture. Minimum, we're running eighty percent, but the minimum is sixty percent. So I don't know if they're getting away with it. I don't. I don't think it's right. So that goes to show that not all food is equal, and people just need to get educated on on where their food is coming from, and and like I said, know your farmer. Yeah. And they need to start using their gut instinct. Consumers need to start using their guts as well as the same way we have. And, and, and feel good about where their food is coming from. Because if you feel good about your, where your food's coming from, it's going to taste a lot better.
2: Yeah, yeah. Of course, that's one of the goals of the Real Organic Project, which is can we connect farmers like you who care with eaters who care? Uh, I'm convinced that there are millions of people in America who want to buy your milk, and they don't know how. They go to the store, they do their best. They're confronted with a barrage of labels that all seem to be saying the same thing. So how do they tell which is which?
0: Oh, boy. I always tell people, if you can buy direct, that's your first choice. Because you'll be able to meet your farmer. And the reason they're coming here on a tour, because I'm trying to instill instinct in these people. What they should be looking for, what questions to ask, what they want to be hearing if the farmer's explaining you know about their food Um, but if they don't happen to have access to any local farmers then that's where you look for certified organic because you're going to pay more but there's a lot of people working under that label trying to make sure you're going to get the best food you know that you can you're going to get what you think you're buying Um, that's what I try to tell people Um, it's very hard for you to know a farmer that's a thousand miles away so you're taking a chance, but if they need, if they realize that not all food is equal, you know, that cow will give you, you know, depending on what you eat, she's going to have a different profile in her milk and they need to just, people just need to, to realize that and really research where their food is coming from.
2: Yeah. You have a thought on that, Matt? It,
3: yeah. Local is always better. Knowing your farmer is always the best. Um, But if not, do your do your best research that you can find a brand that you that you feel good about and stick to that.
0: With social media, they they should they should be able to get answers to their questions. You know, if a consumer has a a question.
2: It seems like part of our challenge is and I don't mean them. It's all of our challenges to better understand. Uh, I know Geez, I've learned so much. I've been an organic farmer all my life. I've learned so much about what organic farming really means in the last seven, eight years because I had to really ask questions. And people come to me and say, well, why can't hydroponic be organic if they're using approved inputs? I go, no, no, it's got to be soil. Why? Well, I didn't have a like brilliant answer for that. I, I had some some feeling. I had a gut feeling. But I have a pretty good answer now. We need to... There is a lot of curiosity and interest out there. We need to help people develop a, a little, you know, be more fluent in in their understanding of biological agriculture.
3: Marketing makes it hard because everyone, every marketing department tries to paint the same picture in your head, regardless of of what product they're selling. They're all trying to make it make it sound like the best. So that's the real challenge that's going to be. Even even well-educated consumers, when once marketing teams find out what exactly those educated consumers want to hear, they're going to tell them what they want to hear no matter what. So yeah, that's, that's I think, going to be the challenge, the next the next challenge.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Everybody's very good at marketing today. <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah, you can be, have the best product in the world, but if you're not good at marketing your product, you're going to be on the bottom shelf. You're not going to move a lot of stuff. Yeah. Like the one with the fanciest package and the keywords on it is the one that's going to probably be looked at the most. So we need to somehow overcome that, not overcome it, but work with that.
2: It's tough. I mean, you know, it's a true challenge. I see that the food distribution system, the way that we're selling into stores is becoming more and more vertically integrated. I used to sell to three, four outlets that are now owned by one Dutch multinational. I mean, major supermarket chains. Now they're all basically one chain, they all have different names. Hannaford, Stop and Shop, Fresh Direct. You know, you go in, they go, oh, they have all these different stores to choose from. They're really all one store. And, and it's, you know, Whole Foods is owned by Amazon. It's very confusing for a small producer. How do you penetrate that? Because it gets harder and harder to get into the shelves. You're doing, it's working well for you right now with Organic Valley. Although, I know that they've had their challenges too, you know.
3: It takes about 800 employees for them to be able to do what they do. So they're, they have to work hard at it and they're doing the best they can. But again, they're trying to fight uh, kind of like a fight to do the right thing, which is a lot harder than trying to fight to do the most profitable thing at all costs. So um, they've done very well with the mission that they've had in mind. But I definitely think developing local cooperatives to sell to our local customers is probably the way to go for the future if we can have um, local aggregation centers and local food co-ops where where you can be like, hey like or the people of the community can see like oh so and so from down the road grew grew these apples and so and so grew these tomatoes and and the communities can feed each other and then export their surplus but I think the main goal of any community should be to feed its people first and keeping all that, all that income within the, within the community rather than exporting all of your food dollars to multinationals, I think is, is the way to go.
0: I think that in the future it'd be nice if there's going to be some flexibility with the co-ops because you know, on this farm, it's nice to have a wholesale market, but it's also nice to have a retail market, and that's what our store is. And having that flexibility, like we have local people that will support us, but no way can they eat all of our product, but to get you know to move product through the wholesale market is where you pay your bills, but your profit comes from the retail so it's it'd be nice to have the flexibility where um, the co-ops can work with the farms and the farms will work with the co-ops, but allow us to move some lo- some more product locally and and feed our local people and and then as that grows, that gets more popular, you know, then we'll see where the future goes. But um, the, co- the, the co-ops, are like Organic Valley is doing a great job, but we don't know what the next five or ten years is going to bring. Yeah,
2: yeah. Organic as a movement is strong. Organic as a brand is struggling right now. I mean, it's not struggling. The, 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 the sales are growing, but what it means is struggling. We see that, that that things are getting sold as organic that I wouldn't call organic. I don't think you'd call organic.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> organic ha- has worked really well, but maybe um, it's time to build off from the organic. And like Matt was saying, we need to work on regenerative. You no, know, we have a bigger issue here with climate change That it's not all about uh people's health it's about world health or the the earth health so i think organic along with regenerative uh, along with building resiliency along with diversification that all needs to be that future model that i mentioned about those horizon farmers they can become a future model well it needs to build off from being a good organic farmer but as well building these carbon sinks that can start, you know, clearing up some of that legacy carbon and really working on carbon cycling and, and, and trying to heal the world that way.
2: I, I agree with everything you just said, except I think you just described real organic, which is just the, what organic was. It's, it's, it's the new brand organic that has wandered. I agree that when Albert Howard and all them said, You know, let's. we need to describe a different kind of agriculture from where the conventional is going that they didn't imagine climate change. And that is a new thing, except everything I see about the way that we can deal with that is what you're already doing in order to create the health in your animals and the health, you know, and the people who drink your milk. It's all right there, I think. It's what Real Organic
0: is. Absolutely. Right on target, I guess, and... We've adopted the thought that climate change is real, and that's why we are on board with Real Organic Project to support their movement, and we wanna be good role models for them. And we'll continue doing what we do, and and I'm sure Matt will too.
2: Yeah, (laughs) Thank you very much, guys. I know that you got a lot of work to do, so I really appreciate the chance to talk to us. Absolutely. Thank
0: you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review so that others can find us. A video version of this interview is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 89. Please join us next time when our guest is Gary Hirschberg, the co-founder of Stonyfield Yogurt and more recently, the founder of the Northeast Organic Family Farm Partnership. This is an effort to help market New England dairy after Horizon announced they were exiting the region over a year ago. To support this podcast and our certified farms, become a recurring donor at realorganicproject.org and get the benefits of being a real friend, including our book club, where you can ask many of our favorite authors your questions. Our next guest is Liz Carlisle tomorrow. She's the author of Healing Grounds, Lentil Underground, and Grain by Grain with previous guest Bob Quinn. I hope to see you there.